everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space episode 711 for the week of monday october 5th 2015 i'm sawyer rodenstein and joining me tonight is gene mcculka welcome gene hey welcome to the pumpkin spice edition of talking space since it is october we're now going to have everything in pumpkin spice this month <laughs> gene you're not that basic that's not gonna happen <laughs> Welcome, though. Welcome as well, Kat Robinson. Hello. Happy to be here. Not happy about pumpkin spice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Look where this is going already. (laughs) Welcome as well, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftlass. I'm just glad that the days are getting shorter and the nights are getting longer. That's all that matters to this sky lover. (laughs) There you go. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hello, and if anybody's interested, the pumpkin patch in Alachua, Florida is open. Won't <laughs> <laughs> the nuts are pumpkin spice lattes or whatever the kids are drinking these days. I'm fine with that. Oh, boy. But <laughs> instead of going pumpkin picking here, how about we go story picking? Because there's a lot that has been going on in the two weeks or so that we've been off the air. Before we get to the big news... Let us begin with a quick little story to get us started about the night sky as the nights are getting longer. Kat? So I am very excited to be able to share this story with everyone. I have a friend, Danielle Adams, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona in both anthropology and Middle East and North African studies. And she was awarded a NASA space grant this year uh, in partnership with the Arizona Space Grant Consortium in order to launch a project called Two Deserts, One Sky. This is exciting. For anyone who loves to look up and loves culture as much as they love space, this is a great project because NASA is also important in placing the cultural relevance and, and importance of what the night sky does or what astronomy does. And that is what Danielle is doing with this project. So what she's doing is because she's located in Tucson, Arizona, it is in the same uh, latitude and looking at roughly the same night sky that ancient Arab cultures used and looked at for their own astronomy. Because of the way uh, history works in the modern era, a lot of astronomy was attributed and centered in the Greek culture context. So it became a Western concept. We did Western astronomy. So her goal with this project, with Two Deserts, One Sky, is to, for the first time, present ancient Arab astronomical traditions within their own cultural context. And she is going to run this project. She's going to explain how Arab cultures use the stars, different names for constellations, uh, how they created star calendars, and how the rich astronomical tradition of the ancient Arab cultures actually helped the current astronomical culture and the the information we have from the Greek context. So it's a really exciting project. It covers a lot of the writings from 9th to 12th century CE. So we're talking about some time ago when there's some pretty exciting astronomical research being done in this area of the world during ancient times. So the website for this is onesky.arizona.edu. 
and she will be updating it often. And we are really hoping to be able to get her on the show or have some way for her to be able to share this research with you. But we wanted to highlight it here on Talking Space because it is something that shows that NASA isn't just supporting hard science research, but NASA is also supporting researchers within the humanities and within the social sciences who are looking about the cultural significance and the phenomena of space within our own culture. So I'm very excited about this project. She just launched it on October 1st, and she's got a star calendar blog that she'll be keeping up to date with and an Arabic star catalog. So very exciting. Cannot recommend to check it out enough. And even if you're not in Tucson, you'll be able to find some of the same constellations she'll be talking about. Kat, the Star Calendar blog you alluded to, is, is that also going to be out there for public to, for the public to look at if they're interested? It is already. It is? I'm looking at it right now as we speak. And that's, I, I was reading it all afternoon today, actually. And, and, and that URL is also the same one that you gave out? Yep. Yes. Okay, just wanted, make, just wanted to make sure because I'm very eager to find out. We had a... In my old planetarium days, we had a uh, one presentation that uh, the planetarium astronomer there, Al Stoner, loved to give, and that was looking at different cultures and, and the way they looked at the night sky. And uh, that particular show, whenever we would do it, was a huge draw. So people are, are obviously interested in this topic. They're interested in learning more. I'm really eager to talk to your friend, and, and hopefully, if her time allows, we can get her over here to just just talk about it a little bit. I'm I'm quite eager to hear more about this. Yeah, it's really if if you like the night sky and you like history, I mean, this would really just hit your sweet spot because it's not only about what you can observe now, but it's about why it was important, who discovered it, what it was used for. It's just it's really a fantastic integrative project of space science and culture. It's very very exciting because a lot of people also don't realize how much the Arabic world kept astronomical and scientific research going while the Western world was going through the dark ages. So they have this long running tradition that doesn't have the same kind of breaks that Western culture has. So making more people aware of the Arabic tradition of astronomy, which of course, astronomy is what actually binds the origins of all people together. So somebody highlighting this is particularly important in a day and age when it's important to recognize the contributions of that whole region. Without a doubt. So good luck, Danielle. Everyone out there, onesky.arizona.edu. We will put the link in the show notes. Check it out. All right, then. Thank you very much for that. So now we have a lot of big news to cover this week. There's a lot of stuff that's been going on. And, uh, you know, we like to get our people out in the field when we can. And Mark Ratterman has been spending some time down at the Kennedy Space Center. And we're going to be hearing a lot of stuff about that for the rest of the year. But, um, Mark? What do you have for us this time? Well, it was a surprise to me about a week ago when I caught up on some email and saw that there was a press event coming up and, you know, at that point, like four days away. And I looked over the information and I thought, wow, this is pretty interesting. Maybe I had to go ahead and uh, throw my name in there and, and take the trip down to Kennedy. And so I did. So the information that I saw that got my attention is a press release, and it talks about a Journey to Mars event titled So You Want to Be a Martian. I thought, well, it looks interesting. They got some participants that will be available for interviews. Jim Green, Director of Planetary Science, NASA Headquarters. Bob Cabana, Director of KSC. Nicole Stott, Retired Astronaut. Mackenzie Davis, Actor from The Martian. 
Chiwedo Ijefor, actor from The Martian. I thought, wow, that'd be interesting to be able to talk to these people. What I didn't catch on to at first is this was also an hour and a half long NASA TV event that connected through NASA's digital learning network to 10,000 students all over the country. And so it ended up being far bigger. And the hour and a half part was not really uh, media accessible in terms of question and answer, but we were certainly watching it. Now, I'll encourage everybody to go to a link that we're going to have in our show notes. It's a YouTube video of the roughly hour and a half long event, and I think you'll find a lot of interesting information. Some of the other panelists that were there, they actually had to split the panel into two parts because there were so many people. Uh, they also had a plant physiologist from NASA named Ray Wheeler, chemical engineer from NASA, Annie Caraccio, they had a NASA intern, William Lewis, who gave some tips on how to be a NASA intern. Also had Dave Lavery, a program executive for solar system exploration, a plant scientist, Gio Amasa, the actors, astronauts that I mentioned, and Michael Johansson, experimental equipment engineer. So there was a lot of good technical information given, questions from students, and afterwards, the part that got my attention to start with was a question and answer with the five people that I talked about. Now, just for fun, let me give you the one question I asked the actors, Mackenzie and, and Chiwetal, pardon my pronunciation of his name. I'm still not sure how to exactly say it. I asked them, I said, with all of the dialogue that you had to learn for the movie The Martian, did you find that a lot of that jargon has crept into your everyday conversation? And they both said, no. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting because I know how much it creeps into our conversations as we're talking to each other and to people that aren't necessarily as knowledgeable about space. But for an actor and actress, no, didn't really fit into theirs. And I'll give you one more little uh, soundbite. James Dean tweeted, uh, he's with Ford today, and he said that the Martian actor Mackenzie Davis, and when asked what the hardest part of a Mars mission would be, she said, I have no skill set to survive. And uh, she says, I can act, I can emote, but surviving on Mars, no, I would die. So it was a lot of fun. And uh, the, the questions, like I said, with the five members afterwards, that was interesting. A lot of good information, sharp people. And the next part of what I did there was to, uh, and again, I didn't apply for this in time to actually be out where the, the press is with the ULA launch, but to go out and see the Atlas V launch on the morning of October 2nd. And it was before dawn. I was quite a ways away, but it was quite impressive. And as a, the rocket climbed up into the sunlit area, the you know, which for us was still pre-dawn, but as it got up into the higher altitudes, we got some of those uh, really interesting, you know, sun illumination on the rocket contrail. Just gorgeous. Picture? No, sorry, I'm not a photographer, so didn't get that. Um, now, the next thing I'll just give you a little tidbit about is after the launch, a few hours later, I had an appointment at NASA headquarters that the press site arranged for me to talk to the weather office folks. And this is something with me being a weather geek and working on weather systems such as the FAA has, I wanted to learn more about. NASA has a Doppler wind profiler. And if you look it up, you probably won't find out a whole lot except for maybe the system that it replaced and is in the, the new system is in the process of being checked out. 
George Diller from the press site took me out there. I got to see the antenna field, and impressive it is. I told George when I, I took a couple of quick pictures and got back in the van, I said, George, I talked to people that do equipment installations, and they say pretty counts, and that's a pretty installation. Wow, that sounds awesome. Thank you, Mark. And again, we're going to have a lot more coming from that. Excited to hear about uh, all the weather stuff coming up, too. That's, it is really cool seeing a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on at the Kennedy Space Center and Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Just to throw in another tidbit, how many times in a countdown have we heard them say the winds aloft are red? They need to release another weather balloon. This is a system that will allow them to give a go on a launch pole that they haven't previously had that capability to do. They were able to give a no-go, but they couldn't give a go for launch based on this wind profiler that they have recently upgraded or in the process of certifying. So it's got some really, really, really important capabilities for rocket launches and being able to accurately provide for the safety of the rocket and payload going up. Now, you mentioned something in there as well. You mentioned the ULA launch that happened this, you know, it seems like an ordinary United Launch Alliance launch carrying up a few satellites, but this, if I am correct, had a special hashtag, ULA100, because this was their 100th consecutive successful launch, I believe. Yes, sir. This was the 100th launch for United Launch Alliance, the uh, Morelos 3, and I'm probably botching that name. I do apologize. This was a communication satellite which was built by Boeing. It was to provide uh, cellular and voice data and uh, video from Mexico. This was the third satellite in the constellation. This is a you know a grand landmark for ULA. It was time to go ahead and open up the old uh, champagne corks because this was a a long time coming. However, ULA too has got its own little. Little problems of late. Uh, one, of course, is the ongoing issue with the RD-180. They're still trying to sort through the RD-180 engine problem. It looks like the Congress is still unrelenting in, in approaching that deadline. Now, the United Launch Alliance is not supposed to use the RD-180, which is a Russian-designed engine, past 2018. They're trying to get an extension for that. I don't know if Congress is going to grant that. I know the Department of Defense is trying to get the waiver. I'm not exactly too sure that is actually going to happen. There is a replacement in the works. It looks like United Launch Alliance has kind of hitched its wagon to Blue Origin for that replacement, the BE-4. However, it doesn't look like BE-4 may be ready in time to meet the deadline. There is another engine out there that uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne is designing called the AR-1. That, too... You know, they're saying they're on target to meet a 2019 deadline, but, uh, well, they tried a few things with United Launch Alliance, including a uh, sort of a hostile takeover, if you will. If you, re if you recall, we reported back uh, a couple of weeks ago on that attempt. I believe uh, uh, Aerojet Rocketdon put $2 billion on the table and said, we want to buy United Launch Alliance. And, uh, well, that kind of sort of went over like a lead balloon. Boeing, who is one of the partners in creating United Launch Alliance, Boeing and Lockheed Martin, did not go ahead and approve that. 
and said, no, we're, it was unsolicited, and quite frankly, we're not interested. This was, of course, to try to go ahead and guarantee that AR-1 would be used over the, uh, the Jeff Bezos Blue Origin BE-4 engine. And now, uh, I don't believe we reported this when it was first published out a couple of weeks ago, the chickens have sort of come home to roost. The contract for the solid rocket boosters or the tie-on boosters for the Atlas V was up, and ULA decided to go with Orbital ATK to provide those boosters for the Atlas V going forward and probably for the Vulcan rocket once it starts uh, operations. And, uh, well, that those solid rocket boosters were provided by, guess who? Aerojet rocket dons. So it was sort of a sort of a punishment, if you will, for uh, that unsolicited sort of hostile takeover, if you will. The other thing that uh, Aerojet rocket dine also kind of ran into was a fifty million dollar settlement. This was also for the over the loss of the Orb three mission, as you know, the orbital mission back around uh, October of uh, twenty fourteen. We covered that here rather extensively. That mission was lost, and along with uh, key parts of uh, Pad Zero A over at uh, the Mid Atlantic Regional Spaceport over in Wallops Island. The fault looked like, although the report has not been released yet, the fault for that looked like it was a bearing on the AR-1 engine. At, um, I'm sorry, not the AR-1 engine, the AJ-26 engine, excuse me, that uh, was being used on Antares at the time. AJ-26 is an offshoot of a Russian design, which Aerojet Rocketdyne was taking and sort of refitting and fiddling with it and making it do things the original design never really could do. Those engines, the AJ-26s, were used for the Antares. And as things looked out, it looked like it was the AJ-26 that was responsible for the accident. As a result of that, they settled, and it looks like a $50 million settlement is being paid to Orbital ATK as a result of losing that booster. But I kind of wonder uh, about what United Launch Alliance is going to do going forward. They have a lot of <laughs> a lot of problems to deal with right now. Not only just the U.S. Congress, but also a money flow problem because you have well, United Launch Alliance has got to do something now it's never really had to do before, and that is compete for business because now you have SpaceX coming in and saying, "Okay, we want a part of this pie here." And they were now authorized to go ahead and compete with ULA for Department of Defense, National Reconnaissance Office, uh, U.S. Air Force type launches. And uh, they're going to be competing head to head now. It's exactly what we were talking about on the last episode with, you know, ULA used to basically have an American monopoly and now they don't. That's exactly right, Cassie. And well, ULA has always been a company where... They were always good at just kind of being in the background and kind of, yeah. you know, kind of just... Go they were the company you didn't know existed until you really looked into stuff. <laughs> they were the... <laughs> because, because they're not, they weren't the face of things. Right, and the problem is, I think they liked it that way. They were mm -hmm. just, you know, just quiet competence. They were just going at their work and doing what they had to do to get things done. And now they've got to rethink what they're doing a little bit and try to 
Well, try to compete for business, which is something that they haven't really had to do for a while. So it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how agile they're going to be. Well, and they just cut, what was it, a bunch of executive positions to try and streamline. They're, they're having to make moves like smaller, more nimble companies always have to make. And the thing is, they are having to go from a behemoth to having to be a bit more like SpaceX <laughs> in, you know, in the sense of being that nimble and agile and, you know, being ready to make moves quickly and being able to trumpet their name as well. Exactly. So I'm, I'm just going to open this up to the floor. Where do you think ULA is going to go after this? I mean, we, they do have the Vulcan in the pipeline, but they are relying on Atlas V to sort of help pay the way, if you will, for Vulcan development. They're hoping Atlas V can still go ahead and you know, sort of pay the bills while Vulcan is in, in development. But without the RD-180, that's going to be pretty difficult to do. That's really, that seems to be their biggest difficulty because the Atlas is the reliable workhorse. It has a track record that couldn't really be better. So the RD-180 situation, that's really going to be the tough one for them. Exactly. And I mean, ULA isn't going anywhere. I don't know what else to say. I mean, yeah, there's some, there are some uncertainties. As we've been saying, this isn't a new player to the game. They certainly are going to be able to handle, in my opinion, the challenges that come up. And I think that if they didn't prepare for competition in the future, then that would be incredibly short-sighted of them. But competition is a good thing. I don't see launches becoming less rare as the future goes forward. So... There might be some short-term things to, to work out, but in the long term, I think ULA remains a steady provider of launch services to multiple customers, just as it is now. Yeah, you know, I, wouldn't, I, I agree with that, um, it, and it really just all comes down to how they manage it. It's just a matter of how they manage it, and, you know, that's the case with any company. That's, you know, that's the market. But they obviously have an amazing track record, and that's the best thing you can have in space, really, isn't it? As, as we watch other companies stumble, it's like being able to say, look at all the successful launches we've had is a really good thing. So they've got a huge advantage there. They do, and I think that they've really they've done a very good job at, at doing that in a very measured and almost humble way. I, I have to say that I think they recognize their place as, as an industry leader in launch support and that they recognize the responsibility that comes with that, but also that if they want to maintain their place as an industry leader, that they will have to become flexible as more players get to the game. And I really think that based on what I see from the company, that they are doing that. And of course, there's always going to be things to work out. Um, especially as you develop new products, you know, as the Vulcan rocket is coming, as there are some uncertainties for the Atlas engine. Uh, but I think that, that these are not things that are taking the company by surprise. Think they're going to get that waiver? I wouldn't be surprised if they do. And uh, where do you, just just to, to leave it, one big question mark here is where do you see Aerojet Rocketdyne in, in this whole thing? Do you think the AR-1 is eventually going to be adopted by somebody or do you see it as a possible solution perhaps to, or at least a temporary solution to uh, ULA's problem or while BE4 is coming online or, or where do you see it? 
I think the thing that makes that kind of difficult to predict is really that the the that risky move that they made that did not work out for them because like you said earlier it's you know <laughs> there there's now actually some animosity between the companies it that didn't help things it, ultimately i i understand what they were trying to do it was a big bold move mm-hmm. but the problem with a big bold move is that it's high risk you know, and that's why you have potentially high rewards, but you can also damage your relationships. This still, no matter how many players enter this industry right now, this is still a tiny, tiny, tiny little industry. And there, it, there are problems when you anger one of your major potential customers. Yeah, they went. I'll say that they went through to, for the Hail Mary and it didn't quite work out the way they wanted it to. Like the vast majority of Hail Marys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, That's why we call it that. Exactly right. Before we leave the topic, just one more thing. Uh, the more and more I, th- I look at what's going on with ULA right now, the more and more I think about, well, this, this is probably a poor not- analogy, but if, if anybody remembers back in the early 80s when telephone company kind of broke up and, and Ma Bell had to do things that it normally didn't need to do, which is a market itself, because uh, Ma Bell was just this quiet little utility that went went about its business. Uh, do you see ULA kind of now morphing into this almost quasi SpaceX company now, and saying, "Hey, look at us! We're doing X, Y, and Z," and 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 needing to go ahead and, well, I hate to say this, jo- join the cool kids club or join the you know be a little bit more you know dare I say this a little bit more sexy than sort of like the way. SpaceX has been handling things, or do you think they'll, they'll, they'll I, continue being the quiet? I don't think so. I know. No, I mean absolutely not. I don't. I don't think so. What the way that they communicate and what's worked for them, I think that there's a place for that in the new industry. There's a place for being the old guy who still wears a suit jacket to teach class. You know, <laughs> there's a place for the old college professor in in this industry to use another bad analogy. I don't think they're not going to try and be SpaceX. I think that would be a dangerous game. They they need to continue to be what they are. And maybe they have to streamline more. Maybe they have to go after new clients. But I think that, you know, when you just look at the growth of the industry in general, that there are clients for both SpaceX and ULA and Orbital and, and any other players that get into the game. So I think that ULA will stay true to their brand. Here's my thought process. They've done a hundred successful launches. And part of what makes them so interesting is that SpaceX has been in the news big time lately in Orbital because they blew up. No one really knows about United Launch Alliance because they're launching and they're launching successfully. These rocket launches now only really make the news if they blow up. And that's all the people care about is, oh, wow, that rocket blew up from SpaceX or blew up from Orbital. You don't really hear about the companies that didn't blow up, which is good for United Launch Alliance. So I think it's good that they stay under the radar and don't become SpaceX and be this big conglomerate company that everybody knows their name. Because right now what they're doing is working. So why try and change that? You know, Gene, you brought up the phone company thing. I I was just thinking about 9X, and I can't remember what companies they ended up bringing in as well, but... I remember 9X was uh, the founding company of what's now known as Verizon. And if you want to talk about rebranding, 9X went from the lame phone company of New York City to the biggest player in wireless. So, you know, it can absolutely be done. And they did it while making themselves rather sexy. So 
it can be done. It's just a matter of hiring the right people, getting rid of the right people, making the right moves within the company as well as externally. At 9X, Bell Atlantic, the whole that whole thing, it was all a big conglomeration of a lot of the baby bells that were here in the Northeast. Exactly. Yeah, Sawyer, that, that was one of my, my thoughts to you. I, I don't think ULA should change, and, and Kat, too, you alluded to this as well. I really don't think ULA should change. I mean, they're, they're, they're doing exactly what they need to do, which is get it done, get it done the right way, get it done quietly, and get it done, you know, and just move on to the next one at a time. And uh, they are, you know, they're just taking this one step at a time. And just as a clarification, by the way, when I said changes in personnel, I was mostly talking in the sense of marketing. They might need to revamp their marketing. There's going to be clients with more options. They are going to have to work a little bit harder to make sure that they are the ones who get the bids. But, you know, that's just the way that things work when your industry opens up. I'm, I'm just thinking that there was a commercial eons ago about a, this. This was a financial operation. I forget the name of it now. But one of the things they touted was, you know, I think their their catch line was the quiet company. And I think ULA should be that continue to be that quiet company, but and, and continue to show how competent they, they can they can get the job done. The trouble is the fly in the ointment is still the RD-180 engine for the Atlas V, and I think they, they really need to work that out. And uh, hopefully either AR-1 or BE-4 is going to be the answer. We still don't know yet. It looks like ULA is leaning more toward uh, Jeff Bezos to come up with the answer for Vulcan and perhaps for Atlas V going forward. But uh, we'll see what time says going forward. It'll be interesting to, to look at for sure. But I'm not going to go ahead and pull my my crystal ball out for this one. This one is going to be, this one is too tough to call. Exactly. And in terms of United Launch Alliance, they have at least three more launches scheduled for this year. There is an Atlas V on October 8th out of Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Uh, there's one the end of October at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. And then, of course, there is the big launch of the Cygnus aboard an Atlas V rocket from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Which, just to add on to that, by the way, quick little bit of other space news, the launch pad, Pad 0A, where it originally launched from at Wallops Island, has been completely repaired, according to NASA, so hopefully launches will continue out of there again next year. And I'm so looking forward to being there when that happens. Oh, I think we all are. Let's continue on to our big story. Hang on one second. Sorry, had to have a drink of water there for this next story about Mars, because apparently we've got more water on Mars, right? We sure do. So longtime listeners of this show will remember when researchers, including an undergraduate from my alma mater, the University of Arizona, first announced features on Mars called Recurring Slope Linear, or RSL, that could possibly be indicative of flowing water on Mars. Now, when I first heard this news in August of 2011, Kathy and I were together at the launch of Juno, and to say that it was exciting is not even an accurate description of how it felt to hear that, hey, there could possibly be flowing waters on Mars at a launch, although the launch was sending something to Jupiter, still exciting. So this past week, NASA announced new findings about that hypothesis. There is strong evidence for seasonal flowing water on Mars. Or as NASA's Jim Green put it, Mars is not the dry, arid planet we thought of it in the past. Under certain circumstances, liquid water is on Mars. This is big, big news and incredibly exciting for science. 
anytime that you can find evidence that confirms a hypothesis is just exciting and will blow your mind. Luju Oja, who was the undergraduate researcher from the original paper, who is now a PhD candidate at the Georgia Institute of Technology, and his team used measurements taken by MROs, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiters, Compact Reconnaissance Imaging Spectrometer for Mars, or CRISM, to, quote, to interpret the spectral signatures as caused by hydrated minerals called perchlorates. These perchlorates enable water to freely flow at temperatures below freezing. So as we know, the temperature can get very cold on Mars, but this very briny water, because of these elements, can flow when the sun is facing them. So during seasonal times, when it would be like summer, there is strong evidence for flowing briny water on Mars. I love this quote from Luju Oja. He said, when most people talk about water on Mars, they're usually talking about ancient water or frozen water. Now we know there's more to the story. This is the first spectral detection that unambiguously supports our liquid water formation hypothesis for RSL. So this was really big and really exciting news. This means that during certain times of the year, under certain circumstances, water currently flows on Mars. I'm having so much trouble saying anything because I'm literally, every time I think about this news, I, I get so stunned. I get, as the Brits would say, gobsmacked all over again. It's just, it's amazing. Like you said, Kat, <laughs> I remember when we first saw the images that this would eventually come from, and it's still, years later, it's hard for me to even talk about. And now, this with this confirmation, it's incredible. It is. It's really incredible. And these images that, that Cassie refers to is these are images from high-rise, which is also an instrument on MRO where they were taking images and they were seeing these RSL lines and they would change. So some of you might be familiar with the GIF, the actual the GIF that they showed during the presentation, the press conference last week was the same one that they released in 2011, which you can see, you can see these changes happening on the surface of Mars. And so they were able to use another instrument that uses uh, spectral signatures in order to see what these changing features are made of. And so it was these images and this, the spectrometer that were able to see what kind of mineral elements were in these images, which led to the evidence that is confirming of the hypothesis of free-flowing waters on Mars. I mean, just incredibly exciting. Yeah, one of the things that I had a chance to listen in on the actual event where they, they announced this here, too. I'm sure we all were pretty much glued to the television or or listening to uh, to NASA TV in some way, shape, or form when the announcement was given last Monday. Uh, where these RSLs are located, though, is kind of tricky. We were There were some questions on getting an apparatus over there or getting something over there that could possibly go ahead and take a sample of one of these things and perhaps analyze it or even bring it back at some point. And I'm trying to remember, it was either, I want to say it was, it was John Grunsfelder um, or, or Jim Green talking on this one. I, I don't remember exactly who it was, but they said that uh, where these these things are located at this particular in this particular region that they were talking about, it was kind of difficult to get a rover over there because of the slope that was involved. 
but uh, an astronaut wouldn't have any real big problem getting over there and and grabbing that. So again, I, if I can just toot the horn a little bit for for the human side of the house, and uh, I'm hoping we don't have to wait that long for a, a human to go over here, there and take a look, look at that. But uh, it, it certainly would be a candidate for robotic exploration going forward. And there was some discussion if that was going to be the case and if that was going to go ahead and change any of the current plans that were in place right now. The answer is probably not. Uh, InSight will go exactly where they had planned in uh, Mars 2020. I believe the the landing site there is still kind of in the process of being kicked around a little bit, but uh, that's not going to change any of the current plans that they, they currently have. But it looks like uh, just wanted to go ahead and put a plug in there for uh, for the human side of the house. Uh, yeah, well, what's really what's really exciting about that? Speaking of the human, you know, possible future human resource is that one thing that will be vitally important for our future exploration of any planet, not just Mars, is our ability to utilize in-situ resources. And if we had water as an in-situ resource, that's amazing because water and elements in water are something that are really hard to carry with you from one planet to another. So the more we could get out of the place we go, the better. So this is exciting, uh, really exciting news. It's just more indications that if we are able to get people there, if we wanted to stay long-term on Mars, the only way to stay long-term is to be able to use in-situ resources. And Mars might have more than we thought. Well, Kat, again, one of the things too, you mentioned were what? Perchlorates, right? Yes. Okay. What's perchlorates? What is one of the things, one of the ingredients that it's really, really good for? Solid rocket booster fuel. Think about that for a sec. You could go ahead and possibly manufacture, and Kat, you were alluding to this, using in situ resources. You can theoretically possibly make your own fuel going forward. Of course, we have the briny water going forward, uh, but also we've got the possibility of maybe perhaps using that to manufacture your own solid rocket fuel also going forward. So there's some possibilities here if you start using your brains and start, you know, kind of thinking about that for a minute, where you could use that for possible future exploration. So again, there are possibilities here. Now, I know everybody was thinking water, life, the whole bit, and I believe it was NASA's chief scientist, Ellen Stofan, kind of extinguished that just a little bit, meaning that the, the water that they did discover was very, very briny, very, very salty, and if any known life form would probably want to stay away from that. But that is, a quote, any known life form. Who knows what might be percolating going forward? And, you know, actually, for uh, planetary exploration purposes, at least of Mars, it's better for us if we don't discover microbial light because NASA has some pretty stringent planetary protection policies. And if we actually were to discover life in this water, it would be very hard for us to explore it and to send missions to it because of those planetary protection policies that NASA has in place to protect any life that we might find anywhere in the universe. So if we want to be sending humans to Mars, we want to be able to utilize such an exciting in-situ resource, it's probably best we don't find any life in it. 
Yeah, the, and maybe that's really controversial of me to say, but I'm all for let's. I'm really excited. I think that we will find microbial life at the very least in our universe in the the next fifty to hundred years. We should find that. I don't want to find it in the briny salt flows on Mars. <laughs> yeah, that that would basically put a lot of the a lot of the stuff out of, out of business. In my opinion, you know, cat, and I've said this on this program several times. If we do find some sort of microbial life, then what should we do with Mars? I believe we should do nothing. Uh, Mars belongs to the Martians, even if they are microbes. We should continue to explore it, yes, but you know, any type of grandiose plans of colonization and all that should be put on the shelf because somebody else is there before us. One of the things I do want to emphasize, though, and this is something that, too, that, that I, if I recall exactly, that came up during the press conference was uh, uh, some commentary that uh, Dr. Alfred McKeelan, who I believe is with the um, uh, University of Arizona, I think he's actually the principal investigator on uh, MRO's high-rise camp. Yes, he is. Right. Uh, he basically said that, the, you know, we're not dealing with with standing water here we're dealing with kind of layers of wet soil under there so let's not confuse this because a lot of people were thinking oh you know there's, there's puddles all over the place no, no 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 we're not dealing with standing water here so i just want to want to get that fact out there yeah from my understanding it's largely hydrated salts like it's it's more that the salts are full of water than there's so much you know like you said there's it's not like Flowing waters of Mars means like there's water sheeting down the hillside. Yeah, and and Kat, one of the things you were alluding to before was the fact that uh, we have these um, planetary protection bits in place and so on. They, you think that's that could actually work against us in a way, <laughs> trying to find life in there. First of all, we don't even know how life started here, let alone elsewhere. And the other thing we do run... Well, of course it was dropped off by aliens. Didn't you know that, Gene? <laughs> well, one of the things we... <laughs> oh, take five, I'll recover from that one. One of the things we have to be careful of, is, as you pointed out, too, we got to make sure that if we do, quote, find, quote, life on Mars, close quote, that it's not stuff that we've brought over ourselves, so that could be really, really kind of messy. So you really want to go ahead and make sure your, your spacecraft is properly decontaminated before it leaves the pad. And that, we've had a couple of problems with that. Even MSL has had some some issues with that. They found out, I believe, that uh, if somebody can correct me here, it was the drill of some sort that uh, may have been contaminated before launch and they didn't catch it. So they were, were like, uh-oh, now what do we do? Folks over here worked out ways to kind of make sure that any type of false positives weren't registered as, as such. Yeah. Well, we've almost certainly sent some life to Mars in the form of microbes. Um, and I, I believe Jim Green might have been the one to say that, like, we've sent rovers there, we've probably sent microbes. Uh, but whether or not those microbes survive in the, in the harsh Martian atmosphere, you know, questions for other days and other shows. But, I mean, it's interesting. Even theories that life on Earth originated from a meteor impact from Mars material. Mm -hmm. So to point out that we don't know, we don't know where life comes from on Earth and where it originates from. And maybe we're all Martians. But discoveries like this, and as we continue to advance on science, 
we're going to find these kind of questions out. One day, we'll probably be able to answer that question because our science will have advanced to that point to where we are able to gather the evidence. Finding microbial life, I want it to happen. What does that look like for exploration of the universe? It is questions we have to ask. If we send a spacecraft to Europa or any place that there could possibly be oceans, I mean, looking at the many moons around our own solar system and who knows how many other solar systems that are excellent candidates for a place that microbial life could live because there's large amounts of water or liquid, which are great places for microbial life to start and live. And, you know, on planet Earth, anywhere that there is water, there is life. We have found such incredible extremophiles, even just within the past decade, that have changed everything about how we need to look for life out in the rest of the universe. So we're still just learning about the extremophiles here. We haven't really ever had a clue what to look for anywhere else. And now we're learning more and more about how, basically, if there is any water, there can be life. It's pretty much that simple. It could even be without water for all we know. We don't know exactly what to look for elsewhere. But we do know that even in the most extreme environments on Earth, if there is water, there's something living there. What do you think of the, the, uh, the reaction has been out there? I mean, there's been a lot of well, naysayers, too. I mean, Dr. Bob Zubrin had this little post on, on Facebook, of, I guess, as the announcement was coming forward, saying all NASA did was confirm what they said four years ago. Who knows? They might even admit that they landed on the moon, which I thought was, well, y- you know, a little bit unfair. I think it shows a That's fundamental... A fun- oh. Sorry. We were going to say the same thing. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that shows a fundamental lack of understanding about the scientific process. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, because I'm, the reason why, no, the reason why I was just taken aback a little bit by that was showing who the author of that comment was. And um, I, I, I think it was, he probably said it to gather more attention because yes, this was first suggested four years ago, but at that time it was nothing but a suggestion. It was one hypothesis out of several that could have explained the presence of RSL, these recurring slope lineae, on Mars. What was announced last week was evidence that confirms findings that confirm one of those hypotheses. That's huge. It is, in its own way, as huge as the announcement that, guess what, tidal heating isn't necessary for geologic activities because we flew by Pluto And when we flew by Pluto, guess what? There was geologic activity, but there's no tidal heating. So it's exciting because now we know that there's a process that we hypothesized about four years ago, and now we have evidence to support us. That evidence helps us build on to what's the next hypothesis? What's the next thing we can find out now that our base is higher? And to say what he said, I just, I don't understand it as, someone with a lot of respect for science and the process of science, I just, I just think it shows a fundamental understanding of the scientific or a fundamental misunderstanding of the scientific process. I'm sure he wouldn't be quite so sanguine had someone said that about his own research. Yeah. Well, well that'll agree. That I, he, that'll definitely agree with you. I can talk to you a little bit about uh, uh, some interesting conversations I've seen between uh, Dr. Zubrin and uh, another uh, gentleman, Dr. Buzz Aldrin. They were rather, uh, shall we say, uh, 
interesting to to be an observer and watch these things like like, like a fly on the wall. One more commentary before I, I kind of throw it back. If anybody's interested, it, when we first examined the story, when it first broke back in uh, August 4th, 2011, our show dated August 9th, 2011, episode 334. And if you want to go ahead and, and really, really get down to the nitty gritty, our conversation started at the 26 minute, 18 second point, And that's, that's when we started first putting some light into this. One more question before I leave this whole thing alone. What do you think of the commentary that some others have been saying that this is just a mere, this was just the NASA PR machine at work, which I've also heard out there a little bit. I've, I, that kind of, that kind of also ruffled my feathers a little bit, but, but I'll, I'll throw that out there. That's another example. One of the things that this is really highlighting is a lack of understanding about science and and the process because this paper was submitted back in April, uh, 22nd of April. It was accepted the 21st of August and just published at the end of September. These things are planned out not around movie schedules. They're planned around journal publication schedules. And so, <laughs> again, it's, it's a lack of understanding in the public of how this stuff works. You don't actually, like, scientific journals don't usually plan six months in advance to promote a movie. Yeah, and... You know, that time between, as you said, you know, it was submitted for publication to the journal in April and wasn't accepted until August. During that time, a bunch of scientists with expertise in this area were reading that paper, making comments, reviewing it, and critiquing it. They were not thinking, oh, well, let me take an extra few, you know, weeks, because if I do that, then let's be close to the Martian. They're looking to check that the science is good, that the conclusions made or suggested by the paper support the evidence in the paper. I mean, it's a very rigorous process to get this in. So when you kind of, you get people out there like naysaying things or saying, oh, this is just PR, it didn't really happen. Not only has Luigi been publishing on this and, and others on the team, including the High Rise PI, you know, they have been publishing on this for several years. They've written several papers. This isn't the first trip to the, to the ballpark here. They, they've been publishing about this, but this is the first time they were able to say, we have unambiguous evidence that supports our hypothesis. So as Cassie said, the public just has a misunderstanding or just no context at all for how scientific research is done. I mean, it's pretty clear, Cassie, you and I, I know both watched Bill Nye on The Nightly Show talking to, you know, two comedians who were basically like, well, we could care less what's going on on Mars. Why is it important to us? And unfortunately, yeah. that's what a lot of people think about this. I mean, we're excited about this news because we care about space and we care about science and, and we want to know what's going on in the universe. But let's be honest here. The average person in America could care less what was just found out on Mars. And in fact, you know, yeah, they did sort of accidentally take advantage of the timing just because, well, obviously everybody cares a little bit more because 
Americans care way more about movies than they do about NASA or they do about space science. Let's be honest and frank here. And I found that particular conversation interesting because Bill Nye, of course, is one of the great science communicators and is excellent at getting people who don't care at all to be interested. And even Bill Nye, he was throwing out things like this, you know, it could turn out that Mars is the origin of life on Earth for all we know because we there's water there and it's possible. Exactly, and we've, exactly. We've had Mars rocks hitting Earth. And this is, to me, like... I don't know how you could not be interested in that, no matter how much you're not necessarily... Now, obviously, I'm biased because I'm interested in space science. But it's really amazing to me that when you're saying, hey, it could turn out that this is the origin of humans, you'd think at that point people would care at all. But they were kind of like, we should be talking about ISIS. It's more pressing. Yeah, and you're right. It basically, it's pretty sad when one of the best science communicators in the country and arguably the world can't contextualize the importance of this finding to the average person. In the essence of the whole thing is the search for life really elsewhere. And this is really the search for who we are ultimately. And maybe that's what you have to bring forward. That's the tough thing to really get across to people. But you're right. I mean, I think everything about exploring the world around us, meaning the universe outside of Earth, is just as fundamental to us understanding ourselves and our place and where we we need all of this to understand ourselves and to understand our own planet. But trying to explain that to people who aren't so interested, you know, it's it's you have to capture their imaginations, but it's a very difficult task when somebody who is extremely skilled at it can't get and we're talking the comedians on this show they're smart interesting people larry wilmore doesn't tend to have really dumb guests it's a smart funny news show and so it's especially scary to see people who are actually interested in things like current events and stuff not care about this we do need to take some lessons from that and i recommend to anybody this was the episode from last monday from the night of the announcement to take a look at it if you're interested in science communication, because I think we could all learn a lot, like you said, Jean, about bringing in that magic some more. Jean, you you said that what we're doing here on Mars is really a search for you know who we are as human. And I have to say, no one said it better than Carl Sagan. We are the way for the cosmos to know itself. If we want to know about who we are, if we want to know about who the universe is, these are the places we have to explore. These are the questions we need to answer. And one of the things I also wanted to allude, because we talked a little bit about this during pre-show, this really wasn't a long time, was it? On you know, when we're talking about looking at scientific research in, in that that respect, either four years really wasn't a long time to go ahead and sit down and you know announce this thing. No, I mean it was fantastic. The fact that we now have so many instruments on around orbiting Mars that we can get this kind of data or get this hypothesis, get findings and evidence to confirm this so quickly, mind-blowing. I mean, we have, I don't know if this is correct, so someone will have to fact-check me, but I believe that we have more missions and things around and exploring Mars than we do have on an Antarctica. I'm going to have to go ahead and find that out. But uh, so I think it's like, I need to be fact-checked on that. So listeners, you guys, please feel free. But I do believe if you look at just just focused on that, I think that I read this somewhere and I could be wrong. Like I said, I'm going to put that out there. Please feel free, everyone, to fact check me, Internet. But I think that we have more missions on Mars than we have 
you know, more missions currently functioning on Mars right now than we have in Antarctica. I'll work on that for the next time, and I'll let you know, but um, I think you may be right. There are places on Mars we know more about than we know about the bottom of our ocean. That I do know is a fact. So it's it's amazing. The fact that we know so much about Mars just continually blows my mind, because there are things that we know about Mars that we don't know about the deepest depths of our own seas. And on that note, I think that's the perfect way to leave this conversation here. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on with Mars, and we'll continue the conversation about Mars in the next episode and uh, maybe even throw in a little pop culture with the Martian and that kind of stuff. All righty then. So to finish things off here, you know we like to end off our episodes, if we can, with a little spinoff. So what do we have for this week's spinoff, Cassie? It's the Advanced Power Electronics Corporation's X90 Solar Charger. As you may know, many NASA missions require... A lot of them use solar power. Now, the problem with solar power is that every spacecraft in orbit goes into eclipse at some point. And so you have to have a battery that is charging from the solar panels, and then you have to switch to the battery actually powering the spacecraft. Well, when you have multiple sources, as they call them, hybrid power systems, you have to actually have these devices that convert and switch which device is giving and receiving power at any given moment. And these switches have to happen on the fly. Otherwise, you'd have interruption in data collection. So they usually have to have a converter for each device. Well, that means they're really big and bulky and heavy, which is bad for spacecraft. So NASA turned to a small business in Orlando that had an SBIR, or Small Business Innovation Research Contract, with NASA Glenn, known as APECOR for short, and they developed a three-port power converter for space systems. Using complex control algorithms, APECOR managed to make one small device capable of managing the power flow in multiple directions between the various power sources. And so right now, the device is being used in testing at Glenn and is being used in the Orion Crew module testbed. So it's yet to be actually on a NASA spacecraft, but it's going to be in the future. They basically greatly reduced the payload for the power converters. And meanwhile, they incorporated their new algorithms into their own X90 solar charger. This fits directly on top of conventional military-grade batteries, and it allows for 30% faster solar charging from the same panel than with competitive devices, as well as making it possible to use a wide array of power sources. Their main market is the military, and this device makes it possible to charge more devices more quickly in all sorts of conditions, and they can use the power sources that work best for where they are, which right now with so many in the Middle East is obviously solar. And the other great thing is you attach this to the top of a battery, and then you can also run other devices off of it. So it allows for really quick charging of multiple devices, and so they always can have their critical devices have batteries ready to go. And what they're also hoping is to use it in projects in rural farming areas so they can provide battery power for families and for irrigation systems, including remote irrigation. And so that way they could have power in places that can't currently have power. They have no generation of power whatsoever. This way it's just a solar charger and a battery and this device. And the device sells for $1,350 currently. 
I'd also like to point out, this is directly from the NASA spinoff article, John Elms at the company said, it's hard for small businesses to pursue work like this that could have a major economic benefit down the road, but is currently risky and difficult. The combination at NASA, where they have a very strong team of people who understand where the technology is going and can see where there are technological needs, provides a big benefit. And I wanted to include that quote because that is really one of the major reasons that I cover NASA spinoffs is because of that small business support from absolute experts. It's fantastic. It's something America needs very badly. And so thank you, NASA, for making these things possible. Yes, indeed. Thank you to NASA for helping make everyday life easier for us here on Earth through technology we learn up in space. That brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you, as always, for listening and for joining us. And also, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Thank you.